My scripture today is Genesis 2, verses 4 through 6. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Grace and peace, guys. I, uh, I'm, I'm real thankful this morning. And, it's, and it, feel, it feels like a, a, a Sunday in the summer here, doesn't it? Um, but I'm real thankful. One of the things I think that we're, we're beginning to do better at is, is creating space for people to use their gifts and building systems so that we're actually making disciples and spreading out the work of the vision and the mission of the church. And so Amy and the work that she has done with our guest connection team, 50, 48 people in our newcomer meet and greet last week. Guys, that's, a, that's amazing. And it's, and it's because someone has stepped up and begun to, to bring some leadership to some things. I think about Anthony. You know, as soon as I see numbers start to go on the slide, I get glazed over. But, but you know, I am so thankful for him. He stepped into this role, doing it part-time, um, as the finance director of BGC, and he's doing a really, he's filling some big shoes of Dave Sharps, and he's doing an outstanding job at really managing our finances and helping us to be good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us. So I'm really thankful to you too, bro. And I'm, I'm thankful even uh, filling the worship leader slots and the, on, in the summer, Andy jokingly said, you know, we're, everybody's taking a rest. But Andy, just stepping in, using his gifts, uh, filling the gap, and, and, and helping to, to serve. I'm really grateful for that. People like Beth, she's all over, serving all over, and so thankful. As most of you know, um, I've shared with you some of the trial we've been going through as a family. My dad did pass uh, last, last week, and so it's been a, it's been a crazy week for me, uh, but a good week, and one in which I've experienced God's grace, and I'm, and I'm grateful to God for his work in my dad's life, and that his suffering is, is over now. But let's give our attention to God's Word. Keep your Bibles, I hope you keep your Bible open after it's read. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 6. You might be wondering, you know, why, why read that short of a section here? What... Uh, what are we going to seek to accomplish today? And, and I'm excited just to look at these, these verses from God's Word. As a pastoral team and a, and a staff, a leadership team, we've been talking a lot recently about our values. Every organization has values, whether, whether you've clearly identified them or not. You live out of a set of values. What we've been trying to do is we feel like we've nailed down our vision, love God, love one another, love the world with the message of Jesus. We've nailed down our mission. We're going to reach people with the gospel, build them up with the gospel, and release them with the gospel. We feel like we've got that nailed down, and we're trying to live out of that. 
but we wanted to give more thought to what are the values. If, a, if you meet a healthy disciple from Brandywine Grace, what will be the values that you would define of their life? And so we've really been thinking about that, and we've come up with seven. One of our values is generosity. Radical generosity is the language we've been using. And it's an important value for us that we would be generous. Like, um, it's really a, if you meet a Christian who is miserly, then you've got someone who is with their life telling lies about God. Right? So that's why generosity is just one of our seven values. And it's the reason why last year, probably around this time, maybe a, a little more than a year ago, we did a series, a short series called The Generosity Project. We were talking about the value of generosity. And in that, in that series, I told of a famous social science experiment that was done on a Christian college campus in the 70s. And the experiment was this. They identified a whole uh, group of people, students, who were going to teach a lesson on the Good Samaritan. So, so they, were, they were given the parable and they were told that they were going to show up at this class and they were going to teach, give a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a shocking parable told by Jesus to illustrate the point of generosity. When they showed up, all nervous, these are college students, they showed up to give their talk. When they showed up, somebody stood there and said, um, we've moved, we had to move the class to another location on campus. The class is there now. The people that you're going to speak to are there now. So hurry up, get there as quick as you can so that you can give your talk. Now imagine that happening to you. Now, Unbeknownst to them, they had planted an actor on the way who was lying on the side of the street, moaning and groaning believably <laughs> in, in, in pain. They wanted to find out how many of the students who were going to give a talk on generosity and serving others would actually stop under pressure for a person who was in need of assistance. 50%. Now, some of you probably thought, wow, that's more than I thought. 50% of the students stopped to actually help the guy. What's the point? It's a lot easier to describe a generous person than it is to be one. It's a lot easier to describe a generous person than it is to be one. But what is generosity? The simple definition I gave when we preached it at Sirius is to be generous is to give abundantly. That's, that's what generosity is. It's to give of yourself abundantly. It's not just your money. It's your time. It's your resources. It's your, uh, your talents. It's to give abundantly. 
to give abundantly beyond any expectation that you're going to get something in return, beyond any sense of obligation that you put the other person under. A synonym for generosity would be to be big-hearted. God wants us, BGC, to be big-hearted, generous people because he is a big-hearted, generous God. Aren't you glad that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve? But as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. God has been incredibly generous to you. He has been big-hearted towards you. He has given abundantly. And when we are generous... In response to his grace, we accurately reflect the character of God. And right here at the beginning of the Bible, we see God portrayed as one who gives generously. Organizing question, how does God give generously? I'm going to give you four ways in which God gives generously that we see right here from Genesis 2. How does God give generously? First, he gives us himself. I want you to notice something. In the first chapter of Genesis, which Moses has written very carefully, there is a name for God used over and over and over and over again. The name... We see it in our translation as God. And if you were to just read through chapter 1, you would see the title of God used numerous times. 35 times in one chapter. The word, the Hebrew word that is translated God is Elohim. Seven times five. Five times seven, the number of perfection. Moses did this intentionally. He used God's name 35 times because he was trying to communicate something to us about God and about who God is. Elohim. It highlights the majesty of God, the power of God, the creative activity of God as the sovereign ruler and creator of all. In chapter 2, which actually begins in verse 4, the first three verses of chapter 2 are more of a summary of chapter 1 and a conclusion of chapter 1. It tells us about the seventh day. But in chapter 4 that Beth just read, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God. Elohim, not used. Now there's a different name for God used. The Lord God. And that is the name that Moses is going to use for God through chapters 2 Chapters 3 and chapters 4. What's Moses doing? 
Why would he switch from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim? Why would he do that? The Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God. Yahweh is the personal name for God. Who relates to and rescues his people. See, if you just think of him as God's sovereign ruler and creator, then what might that God have to do with you? What Moses is here telling us is that God is not just the sovereign, omnipotent creator of all, but he actually is a personal God that takes mind and thought of you. So he's not just Elohim, He's Yahweh Elohim. He is the Lord God who actually regards your specific situation and is concerned about and cared for, cares about you. The only time, the only place this name, the Lord God, isn't used for God in chapters 2 through 4 is in chapter 3, a small section, when the serpent is talking about God. And when Eve is responding to the serpent, they don't use the title Yahweh Elohim. Consciously avoiding using the personal name for God as the serpent lures Eve into sin. Gordon Wenham says this, the God they are talking about, so the serpent and Eve, the God they are talking about is malevolent, secretive, and concerned to restrict man. His character is so different from that of Yahweh Elohim that the narrative pointedly avoids the name in the dialogue. Go home and think on that. That's, that's, like, that, that's like an insight that's worth pondering. This name for God, Yahweh Elohim, combines two character traits of God. It's that he's sovereign, creator, ruler of all, and that he is our rescuer, our redeemer, our savior. The God who rules over all that we rebelled against is the God who saves us, is the God who sent his son to save us. Amen? So whenever you see the words, the Lord God, in the Bible, let that be a reminder to you of how good powerful and generous God is to you. So how is God generous? Number one, he gives us himself. Number two, he gives us a good creation. So what we see starting to take place here in chapter two is a retelling of the story of creation. It's not a second creation that's happening here. 
These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then he begins to tell us, Moses begins to write, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and he hadn't created man yet to work the ground. And there was this mist going up from the land, was watering the whole face of the ground. Then we see in verse 7, we see some details, a retelling of the creation of man and putting man in the Garden of Eden and out of the ground, these trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there's this description of rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden, the names of the rivers. We're getting this very specific description of the special preparation that God accomplished in giving a garden for Adam and Eve to live in. He took very special, he made very special preparations for that garden. This is not a retelling of God's global work in creation. This is actually a telling of of God's activity in preparing the garden specifically that Adam and Eve would live in. Trees, water from four great rivers, the animals. We also see that God that Moses speaks of these activities of being past tense. What's the point? God made this part of creation that we're reading about in verses 4 through 6 for man, Adam and Eve, to enjoy, to delight in. Do you think of God that way? Do you think of God... thinking about you and being concerned that you would find delight and joy in your life. Honestly, I don't think a lot of people think of God that way. We think of God as sitting up there watching to see how we're doing. He's making his list and checking it twice. And then doling out blessing for when he sees something good in our lives, but reeling it back in when he sees something bad. That's not the picture of God in Scripture. The picture of God in Scripture is one who gives abundantly, one who gives generously, who creates everything that we see, creates humanity, and seeks to bless them. The problem isn't with God's generosity. He he gives generously. The problem is that we go looking for something else to satisfy us rather than what God seeks to generously give you. So God is here displayed as one who gives this good creation. He gives a good creation for Adam and Eve to enjoy. Now remember, this is being described as a garden. Living in this area, the existence of a nice garden is not remarkable. Some of you have nice gardens. I've seen some of them. You can go to Longwood Gardens and see some incredible gardens. You can grow an incredible garden in Chester County, Pennsylvania. You have the ability to do that if you have the time 
and the, and the desire, you can do it. But I want you to remember the original audience. We should always think about the original audience. Who, who received this writing from Moses first? And the original audience wasn't living in an environment that was conducive to a lush garden. They lived in an extremely arid desert conditions. So a garden was a special thing. It was a symbol of heaven. So when they read that the first man and his wife were given a garden with trees and rivers, this is how they interpreted that. Man, God really loves this guy. God really loves them. I don't have that. But these first two that he created, he blesses them. He gives abundantly to them. He gives generously. He gives them a good creation because he really wants you to be happy. See, the challenge is we go looking for happiness in places where we can't find it. See, God wants you to be happy, so he gives of himself. He gives you everything that you need to be satisfied, truly satisfied. But we go looking in other places. Isn't it easy, church, to take God's grace for granted? Oh, I do it so often, more times than I'd like to admit, more times than I even realize. I take God's grace towards me for granted. That's why Christians ought to be generous and Christians ought to be the most thankful people in the world. We ought to be generous. We ought to be grateful. The idea of a Christian that has nothing to be thankful for is an oxymoron. It makes no sense. You've been saved by grace. You could never get to God on your own. He came to get you. It didn't cost you anything. It cost Jesus everything. We ought to be those that live with hearts that are full of gratitude. Maybe today as we think about God, is, who is one who gives generously, it's a fresh reminder to you. What do you have to be thankful for? And, and I also recognize that there are people here who are going through a time that would be described more as an arid, dry, desert-like conditions. You ever been there? You ever have been through a hard time, a difficult time that it feels like, man, I know other people are experiencing some garden-like enjoyment, but that's not what I'm experiencing right now. And, and it's real. Like, even your friends would look at the circumstance and say, that is really, really hard. God wants to remind you that even though we know he's sovereign and rules over all, he also is a good and loving God who cares specifically about you, and he's up to something good in your life. And if you could see the end from the beginning, you'd know that he's got something good prepared for you. 
Maybe you're going through a difficult time and I talk about God giving a good creation and giving you things to delight in, but you're not feeling that right now. What I want to remind you of is that God is good. He is all-powerful and he's up to something good. He's just inviting you to trust him and wait on him for it. And when you do experience it, it's going to be all the more satisfying because he brought you through a dry and arid time. How does God give generously? He gives us himself. He gives us a good creation. Third, he gives us good work to do. He gives us good work to do. Now, um, some of this comes from a, a, a further reading of chapter 2. But we know that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and encouraged them to be fruitful and to multiply. He gave them work to do. He gave them special work to do. They were, they were commanded to take care of the garden. And we also know, and we pass over this, I, I, I spent time, I spent at least a few minutes thinking about the, one of the first tasks that Adam was given. And we just kind of pass over it, but you know what I'm talking about, right? He was tasked with naming all of the animals. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a second. If that was your task. Like I just, I, I guess I just pass over that. Like they just were like in a line and they just kind of walked them through and he just went boom, 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 boom. But that's not what happened. It was a huge project. I imagine that was one of the first marital conflicts. <laughs> now, now, I'm imagining here, okay? Because we don't have the fall yet. <laughs> but I just imagine, you know, Adam comes home and he says, how's your day at the office? And Adam's kind of grumpy. He's been naming animals all day. <laughs> and so she looks out across and sees this big animal. And... She says, would you name that one? And he says, rhinoceros. She says, rhinoceros? Why'd you name it that? And he says, because it looks like a rhinoceros. <laughs> to name something is to know it. So you don't, Adam wasn't just like throwing out names like hippopotamus. That sounds good. He, he, had, to, he had to learn about these things like, like a biologist and botanist extraordinaire. He had to survey it. He had to understand it. He had to sort it before he could define it. Genus, subgenus, species, subspecies, variety, a massive project and one in which Adam would have, would have acquired massive knowledge. To define something, you have to have studied it so that you're able to say it's this and it's not that. And that gives you knowledge. That's the nature of the work that was given to Adam. It was a grand, incredible task. And I'm sure it took him a while. I mean, just naming the birds in my backyard would take a while. 
And I think one of the things that I, that I want to point out here, in speaking about God being one who is generous, and he gives us of himself, and he gives us creation, what I'm saying here is that God generously gives us work to do. It's one of the ways in which he's good to us. He gives us work to do. But we, don't we, have a tendency to view work negatively. Now, some of that is the result of the fall. So we're going to see that one of the consequences of the fall is that work's going to become hard for Adam and Eve. So, so the fall has brought consequences to work. Sometimes work stinks. And that's a consequence of the fall. But sometimes it stinks because we stink. And, and God would actually want us to view the work that he's given us as good. See, we, I, I, I do this. You do this. We work with this kind of hope that we're working towards when I can sit and do absolutely nothing. That's like bliss, like, isn't it? That's what we do, though. We, we sit and we wait for that. We wait for that moment where, when is it going to be all done? When will my to-do list? That's why you should never buy a house. <laughs> because as soon as you get one thing done, you're, you're working on something else. I mean, is it just me or does that happen? As soon as I get something fixed, it's like, well, the toilet upstairs running, you know, or whatever. It's constant. But instead of viewing our work negatively, God invites us to see that work is actually given to us for our good. Do you know in heaven, we're not just going to be sitting on clouds floating around playing harps, looking like those stupid little angels that they put on Hallmark cards, chubby little babies? That's not heaven, guys. And if it was, who wants to go there? Heaven is going to be everything that you think about earth multiplied by a million. So all the good things that you enjoy here and on earth are going to be so much better because there'll be no sin. It'll be God's people all gathered together. But what I want to tell you is if you're waiting for heaven because you're finally going to be able to take an eternal kick your feet up, ain't got to do nothing. You're thinking of heaven wrong. In heaven, we're going to have work to do. But we won't have the curse of the fall. Our work will be totally and incredibly enjoyable because work is actually a gift to us from a generous God. Does that help you? Don't denigrate your work or the work of another unless it's illegal <laughs> or harmful. Man, I'll tell you what. Hospice care nurses. Home health aides. gift and their work is a gift I remember once Amy telling me a story they grew up on a she grew up on a farm and she was young and 
they got a flat tire on the tractor, and the tractor was in the area where the manure spreader was. So the ground, the ground on which the tractor was was just a big pile of manure, but they had a flat tire, and they called the man who fixed and repaired tractor tires. And he was laying on the ground in the manure, changing the tractor tire. And, I, and she remembers um, laughing. And, and her dad pulling her aside and saying, don't laugh. That man's getting up every morning. He's going to work. He's providing for his family. And there is nothing wrong with the work that he's doing. Don't denigrate the man who changes tractor tires on a pile of manure. His work has as much value as the CEO of a large company. God gives us work to do. So we're talking about how God gives generously. He gives us himself. He gives us a good creation. He gives us good work to do. And then I just want to make a a small comment, and then we'll conclude about this fourth one. He gives us good companions. So one of the things we see here is that God is going to give Adam, the man, the first man, a wife, Eve. They weren't made at the same instant. We see that in Scripture. We're going to be talking about this more because it's going to be highlighted in this second chapter. But I just wanted to hit on it this morning. It's one of the ways in which God is generous. He creates man and then he creates woman. We're also told that when Adam existed, that Adam must have existed alone for a while. We don't know how long. But in the account of creation, at the end of every day, we're given a summarizing statement by Moses that tells us that God reflected on his creation and then made a benediction. It's good. There's only one point in the entire process of creation where God says something alarming. He actually says, not good. And that's told to us in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So there was a point in creation where the situation wasn't good. And God remedied that with the creation of marriage. We're getting a view here, a high view of marriage. It's not good for the man to be alone, God said. God's response was to provide for him a wife. God designed women to be a suitable counterpart for men, and he designed men to be a suitable counterpart for women. And one of the things marriage does is it deals with aloneness. He said it's not good to be alone. So what's God's remedy for that? 
he creates marriage for one of its roles is to deal with aloneness, which is to say he provides us with a companion. It's certainly a solution to our aloneness, but it also meets our greatest need. Our greatest need in life is to love God and love others. When God gave Eve to Adam, he met his greatest need not by giving someone to him that would love him, although that's what, it's what it did. It gave him someone to love. And in, in doing so, he meets one of our greatest needs. That's why God has commanded us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others like you love yourself. So God gives generously by giving a companion through marriage. How are you viewing your marriage? If you're married, if you're married. Are you viewing that as, as God expressing his incredible generosity and kindness to you? Or have you been busy thinking about your spouse's flaws or the challenges? Or maybe you're just in a season of conflict. Maybe what God is doing today in, in Genesis 2 verses 4 through 6 is reminding you that God was taking care of the aloneness that you were experiencing by giving you a companion. We should be thankful and grateful for our spouses. Think about how you could express gratitude today in a fresh way. Think about how the things that you're grateful for. It's so easy to think about the things that irritate us. It's a lot harder to take time to think about what we're grateful for and then to actually communicate those things. This is an opportunity to do that in a fresh way. Let me speak to those who are not married, who desire to be married. Well, God does, hasn't called, God hasn't called everyone to marriage. Some people won't be married. But God has given us companions. He doesn't want us to live the Christian life alone. That's why he's put a, That's why we do missional communities around here, so we can create a context for people to have relationship. That's why we do fight clubs, so there's a context for people to, know, to be known, to, to know others and to be known. We need one another. Aren't you thankful for the people that God has placed in your life? Fresh gratitude this week from my brothers. I have four brothers. I spent a lot of time with them this week, and it's been great. Freshly grateful to God for the gift that they are to me. Think about my family. This church. Thank you for all. So many of you have texted me, emailed, sent cards, called me. Thank you. Thank you for your companionship. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your love. It's one of God's kindnesses to you that he's given you good friends. Praise him. Thank him. So I've said 
that God gives generously and that this scripture shows us how he gives us himself. He gives us a good creation. He gives us good work to do. He gives us good companions. Hopefully that stirred fresh gratitude in your heart for him. What I want to do now is just pray. And maybe even as we pray, we'll just take a moment of silence and just think of the ways in which God has been generous to you. And just quietly give him thanks. And then I'll pray. Five things you're thankful for. We ought to be able to come up with those pretty quick. Lord, you're, you're the Lord God. You're Yahweh Elohim. You are big-hearted and generous. We thank you for your kindness and your generosity to us. We pray that you would make us to be like you, big-hearted and generous and grateful to you for all the good you've done to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.